Welcome back here to Monster Kid Radio, the podcast where we celebrate the classic and sometimes not-so-classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your host, writer-producer Derek M. Cook, and I'm back with another song from the Alder Kings. This is Dead of Night from the EP Who Goes There? You can find out more about them over at thealderkings.com or follow the link in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. Now, the Alder Kings is not the only group of people back for this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Nope, we've got Conrad Veidt. We've got Greg Starrett to tell us about the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Now, in the last episode, we kind of got a primer on Conrad Veidt and everything that we needed to know about this classic movie actor, did a lot of silent films, did a lot of sound films. Well, this time around, we're going to talk about pretty much his most memorable film, at least as far as Monster Kids are concerned, the 1920s film, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. This movie has been called the first horror film ever. We're going to talk about that in the discussion with Greg. This is an important film, ladies and gentlemen, not just because it's a great creepy movie, but because of everything that it brought forth, everything that it put on the map for monster movies from that point onward. I would even go as far as saying as movies today, some of them owe a little bit to The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Just saying. Now, before we get to that, I want to tell you a little bit about our website, monsterkidradio.net. You can find links to everything you need to know about the show between episodes, our Facebook page, our Live 365 album, our Patreon page, and, of course, our contact information. Our email address is monsterkidradio at gmail.com. And our phone number, we've got a voicemail. It's 503-4795-MKR. That's 503-479-5655. Seven. We actually received some email from one of the listeners, Chris Franklin. He's one half of the Supermates podcast, which just launched their horror-themed episodes throughout this month. And in October, they're going to be doing some horror-themed episodes and then talk about how some of these classic monster movies tie into comic books. Really enjoyed the last episode they did about The Bride of Frankenstein. I recommend everybody check that out. Look up Supermates Podcast on Facebook or on iTunes. Pretty much wherever you can download podcasts, that's where you can find it. Anyway, he wrote in. I've always been interested in learning more about Conrad Veidt, so I was glad to see you covering him on the next few shows. The first time I saw a pick of Veidt from The Man Who Laughs, my jaw hit the floor. Here was the Joker in the flesh. Now, I later learned he was indeed the inspiration for the Joker. There are many versions of the Joker's creative origin tale, but it would seem that Bob Kane and Bill Finger themselves conceived of a villain called the Joker. Jerry Robinson designed a distinctive Joker playing card, and Finger came in with the photo novel of The Man Who Laughs and said, here is our Joker. Kane and Robinson's early Joker looks exactly like Vite. There is no question he was an influence, at least at some point before Batman number one was completed. The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari creeps the crap out of me. Those old silent films have a haunting quality about them. Very unsettling, but in a good way. Looking forward to more discussion in part two. You're dead on, Chris. And, you know, here's the thing. I think we benefit from the age of some of these silent films because, you know, the rate at which the films are being shown now might have been a little bit different than what they were back then. The FPS, the frames per second slightly different and we're kind of used to seeing you know 30 frames per second on video whatever it is on film depending on what format you're watching 
these older films have to be slightly changed in terms of their speed for us to enjoy them. And a lot of times they do end up with this kind of herky-jerky kind of movement. But in something like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, it works because that whole movie is herky-jerky by design. The production design, everything else. Well, we're going to talk about it with Greg here in a moment. Also, The Man Who Laughs, that look... Is a, and to think that Jack Pierce designed the look of The Man Who Laughs, which went on to influence the Joker. I mean, it's our monster movies influencing pop culture, even all the way back then, which is amazing to think about. Fantastic. Kind of mind-blowing to think about, actually. And I'm probably going on too much about it. Also wanted to let people know that we received a number of comments from folks, as well as from Greg himself. It turns out the movie The Hands of Orlac, which we thought was a lost film, is actually out on DVD. And I don't know if you can hear this, but if you listen carefully, I just added it to my Netflix queue. I just clicked the button and moved it to position number one. So I'm going to check that out. Greg wanted to let me know that he discovered that after our recording. And like I said, a number of listeners wrote in with that information as well. You know, I've talked a lot about Greg. Why don't we go ahead and get to Greg, get to talking about the cabinet of Dr. Caligari right after this. Do you enjoy movies like Carnival of Souls, The Mole People, Black Sunday, and The Tingler? Do you find yourself late at night reading magazines such as Film Max, Chiller Theater, or Monster Bash? Do you love vintage television programs like Sky King, Outer Limits, and The Time Tunnel? Do you find yourself surfing the net looking for the next monster movie festival or expo? Do you enjoy hearing anecdotes, cinematic details, and unusual insights into some of your favorite movies? If you answered yes to any of the above, you are encouraged to join your host, Vince Rotolo, as he examines some of the latest horror, sci-fi, and cult theatrical releases, new DVDs to add to your collection, and of course, the old classics, both good and bad. He even interviews people throughout B-Moviedom. So tune in to B-MovieCast at bmoviecast.com. From Haiti, land of the voodoo, comes the most infamous cult of all. Bela Lugosi as Murder Legendre. I death. Master of the Undead Damned. The sinister power behind the white zombie. Zombies? Yes. They are my servants. This soul killer takes men from their graves to be his slaves. His instruments of terror, and now this fiend plots to possess a woman. Only a pink boy, a silver moth, in a glass of wine, or perhaps a flower. Keep it, monsieur. Keep it. You may change your mind. Not dead. 
Are you mad? I saw her die. The doctor signed the certificate. I saw them bury her. Captive in the borderland between life and death. Her brain drained of the life spark. The white zombie obeys the unholy commands of her demon master. As mindless creatures carry out his cursed will, terror explodes in horror and heartquake. Zombie! Halebi! Halebi! Never eyes so evil, never powers so potent, never magic so black, Bela Dracula Lugosi, as the master of the white zombie. get a little bit more specific about the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Okay. From 1920. Uh, the director's name, and we mentioned this earlier, we're probably going to mispronounce some of the names here because neither one of us are uh, able to speak German fluently. The director was Robert Wein. Wein, Wein is that way. I believe, I believe it's pronounced. Do we know much about him? I know he was German, obviously. Sure. Um, cabinet of Dr. Caligari is an expressionist film, and he, he did other films like that. I know he had worked with Armand Veidt a couple of times, but beyond well, that, yeah, exactly. Other than that, I don't know much about him either. But I am fascinated that you mentioned the expressionistic uh, style of the film. I am fascinated with the look of the movie, and I don't know who brought that to the table. Was that the director? Was that the producer? Was that just a style of filmmaking at the time? It was a style of filmmaking at the time. I believe the director had a lot to do with that. It wasn't just about the sets, although, I mean, that's certainly a huge, noticeable thing in the cabinet. A lot of it, of course, painted on canvas, but everything, there's not a right angle in that, you know what I'm saying? It's like (laughs) an Escher thing or something. And even, like, when the doors that do open, you know, things they actually had to construct, they're all at a weird angle and everything like that. And it really gives a creepy feel to the film. I just watched the film recently myself, and uh, just it's amazing how it, it holds up. I never look at it and think, oh, that's corny. I mean, it's, it's great. It's just a dark feel to the film. That's part of the expressionist thing. The sets, the acting, they kind of purposely did sort of a jerky thing. It's not just the, the old-time film. It's actually they, they tried to have that kind of a movement and, and create an atmosphere. Oh, I agree 100% with you. The look of the film, the production design, the art design, it's so wonky. It is so not right, but it still works so well for the film. And it's got this bizarre, and I don't want to say nightmarish because it's not thunder and lightning or whatever, but it is this weird, bizarre, dreamlike story that, if it wasn't for those sets, I don't know if it would hold up the way that it does today. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I, I think the sets do have a lot to do with it. The whole feel, the whole expressionist feel is, makes that movie stand up, I think. I know some of it was budgetary. You know, it's a lot of painted on canvas and paper, like you said, but I can't imagine the story working any other way. Budgetary probably was part of 
it. But they definitely, I mean, they were going for that look, and they were going for that feel with this film. And I think with a bigger budget, it might have been maybe even more geometrically absurd. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that's a, it's, part of, it's a huge part of the film. There's no doubt about it. I mean, the, the story is great. The sets, the whole feel is awesome. And uh, there's great acting in it, too. I think Conrad Veidt is awesome. Oh, he's great. Yeah. That scene where, well, everybody's hopefully will see this, but the scene where he wakes up in the oh, cabinet or Calgary wakes him up and he just slowly opens his eyes. I remember that was the first scene I've ever saw that because it was the preview for when they're going to show it here on PBS when I was, I think, seven or eight years old. And that still sent the goosebumps, you know, and chills up the spine when I saw it just recently. It's like, wow, that, he just does that so well. Oh, and he really does. Yeah. Slinking along the sets there going to kill that guy. Wow. I mean, just really outstanding. And, you know, there's another thing, too, that there's two iconic things when you think about horror films, two images that come to mind are the monster carrying a woman. Mm -hmm. That's one. Think about it. You know, how many times has that been done? And the monster being pursued by a group of non-monsters, villagers, whatever. This film is the first time you see both of those images. Caesar grabs the girl, and then her dad and some other people are following them. And it's the first time you see it, and it's really the best time you see it, I think, too. It's really a it's scary. You know, it really is. There's a sense that they're kind of feeling their way through these images that will eventually become iconic or even stereotypical for a lot of these movies now. There's a sense that they're kind of feeling their way through it and really trying to make it work. And boy, does it work. Because you're right. When he's carrying the girl through and they're chasing him around, yeah, it became a standard in the, at least the universal you know, monster movie catalog through at least the 50s where there's the villagers chasing after the monster. I mean, that's it's just one of those things that you kind of expect in a monster movie these days, and this is where they did it first. And, and I would say I agree with you, it did it best. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's really, really good. And you're talking about the first time you see him open his eyes. There's also the longer shot with him and the doctor on the screen together, and he, it's a full-body shot of him coming out of the cabinet. And he's in the shadows, and he's coming out of the shadows, and his hands are kind of brought up a little bit. It is just some striking imagery in the. Yeah, and another one of my favorite images is Caesar sitting up in the his cabinet, it's on the ground, being fed by the doctor. That, that, for some reason, that just strikes me as kind of eerie and strange. And It's unsettling. But, yeah, unsettling, that's a good way to put it, exactly. It's, it's an unsettling scene. It brings into question what is the relationship between the doctor and Caesar, and it's just creepy. Yeah. I was going to say, we're talking about the doctor. Maybe we should mention who plays him, Werner Krauss, or Krauss? Yes, I believe it's Werner Krauss, yeah. Krauss, okay, who played Dr. Caligari. I don't know much about the cast, period, about this, but I'm assuming another German actor. Oh, he was in Waxworks, according to the IMDb. I'm assuming he had a long career on film and stage back then, and he's despicable in this film. <laughs> he just oh, looks absolutely. like the villain. As soon as you see him, you don't trust him. Plays the role wonderfully. I mean, he's awesome in this. The only other cast member I really know the name off the top of my head is the girl, Jane. Is I believe it's Lil Dagover. She's the one that he's carrying away, of course. It's the uh, guy telling the story's fiancé. And that's another thing, too. This, this movie, it starts out with a guy telling a story about Caligari and Caesar and everything. And at the end, he's an inmate in the mental institution. And... Uh, 
it's sort of like, did this really happen, or is he just insane, or you know what I'm saying? It's that, that twist ending that I think this was an early example of that. I don't know of any earlier films that use that kind of a twist at the end, you know what I'm saying? I totally agree with you, and it's fascinating again to me, somebody who likes to look at the history of film, and you look at what Hollywood was doing during the silent era, and, and no disrespect, I know there were a lot of real creative people working back then. I'm a big fan of the early work of D.W. Griffith, for example. But when you think about silent film, especially from this era, you don't necessarily immediately think of this complex storytelling. And what's happening in the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, you've got a story within a story, you've got this framing device, you've got an unreliable narrator. It's pretty sophisticated compared to a lot of the films that were coming out of Hollywood at the time. Yeah, I agree. It's amazing to think that this was 1920 when this film was made because it's just so groundbreaking in so many ways. And it wasn't like a big budget picture, although it, was, it ended up being very successful. It was sort of like, you know, kind of went off, oh, we're just going to make this film because we want to make it. You know, it wasn't like it was some big contract or big studio or anything like that. For what it is, it has all these pieces to just be another low-budget movie, you know, to release for, again, this low-brow entertainment form of the 20s. In the film, because again, film wasn't necessarily respected as high art at the time. But man, there's some things happening in this movie that are just phenomenal. Well, again, the, you mentioned the framing device, and you know, I mentioned that as well. The unreliable narrator, when you come around to the end and you get that big twist, you can't help but think about everything that happened before that and what happened. Did it really happen? Is it all? You know, it's just amazing to think about. Yeah, you don't see it coming. When I was watching it recently, again, I guess my new appreciation for it is that this was 1920. What else was being done then? And oh my gosh, this is leaps and bounds ahead of a lot of stuff. A lot of the films that were coming out, well, I say a lot as if I know a lot of them, and I really don't. I only know of two big horror movies or or monster movies or proto-horror movies that came out of Germany in the 20s, and that would be this one and Nosferatu. And both of those... I mean, even if you take away the wonky sets and the non-right ankles and the non-Euclidean geometry or whatever it is that's going on in Caligari, there's still so much work and so much attention being paid to things like shadow. Yes, that's another big part of the expressionism, the shadow. And in Caligari sets, there's actually you can there's painted shadows on some of the sets. Exactly. They did it more with lighting in Nosferatu, but that's it's so effective. And actually. You see some of this carried over in the early universal horror films like Dracula and the original Frankenstein. Charles Hall was the set designer. He was from Germany, and he designed the sets for The Man Who Laughs and then later designed the sets for Belagosi's Dracula, Boris Karloff, Frankenstein. And so some of that kind of came through into the early universal stuff as well, I believe. I think so, especially with... Well, I mean, the big guys, you know, the Frankenstein, the Dracula films, there's this starkness to the set design and the lighting design that I think did carry over from the silent films, which, you know, makes sense. Todd Browning, who did Dracula, was a silent film director. So you see a lot of that kind of carry over. And I've also read some suggestions and various message boards that some of the later Frankenstein sequels may have intentionally pulled some elements from Caligari for their set design and their production construction, that sort of thing. So you look at these movies and they really are groundbreaking. They provide so much for this horror landscape that we as monster kids love now. I think this is a movie that people need to see and respect. 
Yeah, I agree with you. It's kind of like the founding father uh, type of thing with uh, this film. I could get behind that for sure. <laughs> if nothing else, Caesar is a wonderful, well, let's call him a villain. He's an antagonist, sort of, although he's also a victim in this thing. He's not the big bad by, right. by no means. And he doesn't even make, spoiler, I from a movie from 1920. He doesn't even make it to the end of the movie, but he's still so effective and creepy in the makeup and the way they shot him or didn't shoot him when it comes to the use of the shadows. And Wright's just appearance made him perfect for that role. He was thin. He had this, he has that real angular face. I mean, that also worked well with The Man Who Laughs, too, with the, his face. Yeah, in a silent movie, he can project so much with his face. It's, and he's playing a somnambulist. I mean, he's not like he, although he gets kind of maniacal in that one scene with the girl, but he's kind of like a, almost a zombie kind of a character. But when he comes to life and just, I don't know, he just can really pull it off. And he really, his face, very expressionist. I'm glad you mentioned the zombie appearance or connection even. Before I did Monster Kid Radio for five years, I produced a zombie movie podcast and I always loved the old zombie movies, the old black and white zombie films. And I can't help but think that maybe some of those looked at Veidt's performance as Caesar to find some inspiration or a callback or something to pull from. Because he does have a very zombie-like gait. Right. And I've heard that same thing. I mean, I've heard actually that they were basing some of that on him. And why not? Again, it's the founding father thing. I mean, he's a sleepwalker. He's a somnambulist. So he's sort of like the walking dead. And I remember a friend of mine said, well, wasn't he a zombie? And no, he's not really a zombie, but uh, talking about Caesar. But yeah, you're right. And I'm sure that was a huge influence on the early zombie films. The makeup of Caesar, they put these dark circles or, or triangles specifically underneath his eyes, which combined with the lighting again and the shadow. And the thing about a lot of these early silent films is that especially skilled directors would put so much of the screen in shadow so that you had no choice but to look at a very specific area of the image. And you combine that with the use of the dark triangles underneath Caesar's eyes. He's just so creepy. Yeah. If I saw that thing coming to me, I wouldn't ask it questions to find out what my future is. I'd be turning around and walking out of the, the circus tents. <laughs> exactly. And what a dumb question to ask. How long you got to live? Do you really want the answer to that question? It's not, especially not asking a guy who looks like that. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Of course, I don't know that he really, could Caesar really foresee the future because he, he just, or just make it happen. This is true. This is true. <laughs> You were talking earlier about the skeletal look of uh, Vite and how he kind of his body lends itself to these more I'm going to say monster roles, even though they're not really monsters, but these these more villainous kind of creepy type roles. It works so well that there's a point in this film when our heroes are trying to keep an eye on Caesar to make sure he's not getting out of the coffin or the cabinet and going around killing everybody. They're watching him and they find a dummy. In the right, right. And we're talking 1920s filmmaking technology here. Special effects aren't the field that it would grow into. So you watch some of these older silent films and you see these what passes for special effects and they look a little dated. But in sure. this, because of Veidt's look, it took me a second or two to realize, oh, wait, that is a dummy. That really could have been him sitting in there. So, again, it just yeah. works on so many levels. You're right. Now, how many times have you seen the film? You said you watched it just recently for the first time in several years. I have no idea. I mean, at least 15 or more. 
I watched it uh, every time it was on when I was a kid. And it would be on about once a year. I was, again, fortunate for a monster kid. You know, I, my time frame of really being my biggest monster years were probably like 68 into the 70s. And how many monster kids got to see the Hunchback in Notre Dame, on, but the original version, the silent version, or, you know, other Lon Chaney films and, and uh, Charlie Chaplin films and all kinds of stuff. So I was very lucky to have that available to me as a kid because I grew up watching and appreciating silent movies. And I, I don't know that everybody had that opportunity. There is certainly an art to watching silent films. It's a little bit different than watching a film with sound or a modern film. And I think once you've mastered the ability to watch some of these silent films, you grow to appreciate them on a level that you don't necessarily get with with these sound films. I mean, because you're really watching for the performances, maybe even on a heightened level, because there is no sound. And it's just, you know, watching Caligari this time for me was, I haven't watched it in years myself, and I just fell in love with it again. It's one of those films that it bears repeated watching. Oh, yeah. You always pick up on different things. And uh, it's just a, it's a great story. It's a great movie, and uh, I, I'll probably watch it 15 more times before the end of my <laughs> uh, career here. <laughs> Have you ever had a chance to see it on on a big screen? No, I haven't. Oh, oh boy, man. would I love to! Oh boy, I did get to see the uh, original Lon Chaney Senior Fan of the Opera on a big screen with a live organist, and. That was something. That was really something. And I, I would do it again in a heartbeat. And I would love to see Caligari in, on the big screen, absolutely. Now, the movie's in the public domain, obviously, since 1920. So it exists in multiple formats out there. How many copies of it do you have at home? I have a DVD and a VHS that I still have. <laughs> and do they have an accompanying music track? Yeah, they do. And I don't believe it's the original music or anything like that. Sure. It's uh it's not overbearing. You know what I hated was when uh, Universal put out Dracula with a uh, music track. Do you remember that? Uh, with it Philip was, Glass? Yeah. Yeah. I really didn't like that. Yeah, I mean, I like Philip Glass as a composer, but it just didn't work for me. No, no. I struggled for a long time. Is it because I'm so used to seeing Dracula without this overbearing music track? But it just, I think I ultimately decided it just doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, I never turned that feature on on my DVD. I, I actually, somebody gave it to me on VHS once. And it's like, uh, it's like I played it once and that sat in the drawer. It just doesn't work. No. When, you, when you're coming out of film, knowing that you're not going to have a lot of sound or any sound at all, you do so much more with it. And then coming after the fact and adding this track that just wasn't, it just didn't fit. And yeah, I agree with you 100. Like I said, I like Philip Glass, but it just seemed like... And part of the silence, part of the creepiness of Dracula is that all that silence, you know? I mean, that's, that's just part of the film. It's part of the whole atmosphere of it. And to throw that music in there, it just was like, wow. I mean, at first I was I was open-minded about it, but I didn't like it immediately once I started hear, listening to it. I agree. I agree with you 100%. Yeah, uh, the version that I most recently watched of Caligari was on YouTube, and I it had a music track on there. I don't know who did the score. I don't know who did it, but it's pretty much wall-to-wall music. It's a orchestral piece from the beginning to end. There's really no down moments uh, with no with no uh, audio, no music. It wasn't bad, but yeah, I do wonder what the original music must have sounded like. You know, I, I never paid that as much attention to the music now that we're talking about it as uh, you know I did the film itself. But it was, it's always had music, so I'm kind of used to it. It's unlike the Dracula where they added it later. And I'm so engrossed in what I'm looking at that the music's just sort of in the background. It's a, it's sort of setting the mood, but the mood's set 
so much more by the sets and the actors and everything else than the lighting that I guess the music's always been just kind of a background thing to me that I didn't pay a lot of attention to. Yeah, I agree with you there. It's just it fades into the background. I did watch a little bit of a documentary on YouTube about Vite right before we started recording as well, and they show a clip from Caligari, and there's this over-the-top bombastic thing going on, and it just doesn't work. So I think if you can watch the film with a with some music, you can just kind of let fade into the background, you're better off, because what's really important is what's happening on screen. Fortunately, even though it was a German film when it was released here in the States, they did do the title cards in English for us non-German speaking and or reading audience members. So it's real easy for people to get their hands on. I mentioned it's public domain. I don't know if there's a really nice Blu-ray release of this anywhere. I know Kino put out a nice Blu-ray of Nosferatu not too long ago. But I feel like this is one that if you don't have in your collection, you've got to have it because you're going to go back and watch it more than once. Yes, exactly. I agree with you. And, you know, there's many of uh, film critic or film expert or film historian, whatever. Most of them, this is in their top 100. It's, it is a must-own, I think. Not just for the history of it, bringing in the, the fleeing monster and the shadows and how the production came together and what it looks like, but because it's just a really good film. It is. It's a great film. It, it works on every level, I think. You know, everything is about it is great. I agree. I agree 100%. Well, before we let you go, is there anything else that we want to uh, say about The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari other than please go see it, ladies and gentlemen. Please watch yes, it. <laughs> please do. I mean, just to sum it up, it's, in my opinion, it's the first horror movie. It just it was a groundbreaking film, and uh, everybody should see it. So you have the Monster Kid Radio stamp of approval for sure. And the stamp of approval from Greg Starrett. So. That's right. Now, at the top of all this, we mentioned that you co-wrote Fit for a Frankenstein with Paul McComas. Well, what's going on with Fit for a Frankenstein right now? There's a magazine called Monster Bash, and the, the new issue is going to have a review by Leonard Cole of our book. Uh, not a very nice review, a favorable review. The book is available from the publisher, Walkabout Publishing, or you can get it at paulmccomas.com. And uh, we're tossing back and forth some ideas about uh, a second book coming out, so uh, oh. we will be definitely doing that. Is Paul's website the best place to look for information about that, or do you have a web presence of your own anywhere? Uh, I don't have a web presence of my own. So, yeah, com is the definite place to look at that. And, again, it is available from our publisher and on Amazon. And please don't buy a used copy because we don't make any money when you do that. <laughs> That's true. We want to support our fellow monster kids. You know, Even though it was on the gift guide for 2013, if you haven't picked it up for yourself yet here in 2014, you really need to pick it up. I loved Fit for a Frankenstein. I mean, any monster kid is going to love the book. I mean, it just it's written by monster kids that love the, the stuff like every other monster kid does. And I just, and I think it, it works. I know a lot of people that don't know the whole story of Frankenstein and things, and they liked it. Uh, they liked it a lot. It works on a lot of levels, I think. What I loved most about Fit for a Frankenstein is that you two nailed the dialogue of Igor. You cannot read dialogue or Igor's dialogue in that book without hearing it spoken by Lugosi in your head. Well, thanks. And, you know, that was we really worked hard at that, and it was a team effort on that. And I know even our publisher helped kind of fine-tune that a little bit. Think about this. You're a monster kid. I'm a monster kid. I was writing dialogue for Bella Lugosi. <laughs> you know, how cool is that? I mean, That's whoa, a dream, man. That's living yeah. the dream right there. Yeah. Of course, he didn't, you know, actually say it. Hey, he did in my head. 
Yeah, he did it in a lot of people's heads. I, I do think that that's a really effective part of the book. And we've mentioned the publisher a couple of times. That's Stephen D. Sullivan's outfit, and Stephen D. Sullivan's been on the show before, too. So you're supporting Stephen D. Sullivan. You're supporting Greg. You're supporting Paul when you pick up this book. New, it's available through Paul's website or Amazon. And I believe I have it available in the Monster Kid Radio store as well, which is just a link, a, a collection of Amazon links. So please, if you guys and gals haven't checked it out, I highly recommend it. It's worth your time. And then I think I've seen a photo... Is it of you dressed as Igor? Yeah, I'm Igor, and Paul is the monster. And you've performed this, haven't you, at some point? Yeah, we did. We did a couple of performances and book signings where we, we did a, a scene from the book, and I played Igor, and Paul played the tailor, Houchman. <laughs> uh, yeah, we had a lot of fun with that. That's also on YouTube uh, as well, our performance at Tuesday Funk. It was a... Uh, uh, it's a place in Chicago. Authors do their readings there every Tuesday, and uh, we had a lot of fun doing that. I'm going to have to keep an eye out for that link and make sure I put that in the show notes. I think listeners will dig watching that. It's entertaining, and we had a lot of fun doing those, too, because uh, we did some of the you know more comic bits. You know, we, you get to go up there and, and have fun. Well, that's what all this is about. You know, they're monster movies or horror movies, but it's all about having fun with them as well. And I love that there are so many of these movies that are, we talked earlier about how some of them didn't survive, but there are so many movies that did survive that we can all still love and appreciate. And you'll find or camaraderie with other fans of these films with, like you, Greg, thank you for coming to Monster Kid Radio and talking to us about Ken Redfight and the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. And we've got to have you back on down the line, man. I'd love to be back on this. This is awesome. I said it before. I'm going to say it again. Big thanks to Greg for taking the time to chat with us here at Monster Kid Radio about his favorite actor and one of his favorite films. The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari is a standard. It's a classic. No self-respecting monster kid can, well, call themselves a monster kid if they haven't seen this movie. I, you got to. I really really think you're going to find something to like in this film for all the reasons that we talked about with Greg and so many more. Now, off mic, Greg told me that there are some other writing projects coming up down the line. As soon as I know more, as soon as he lets me know more, I'll share that with you here on the show. And we're definitely going to have Greg on the show in the future. Open invitation to you, man. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us here at MKR. I want to thank everybody who has become a patron of Monster Kid Radio through our Patreon campaign. Head over to patreon.com slash monsterkidradio or go to monsterkidradio.net and click on the Patreon button. It's going to take you to our Patreon page where you can make a pledge, a monthly pledge, to help support Monster Kid Radio. And some listeners have already done that and have made a pledge at the Corman level. Now, the Corman level entitles you to have your name read on the show once a month as part of a special thanks. A couple of those folks were Stephen D. Sullivan and Maya Duncan. Stephen, Maya, thank you for helping to make Monster Kid Radio possible. Next week over at the website, monsterkidradio.net, we're going to have a special, special thanks section as well, where you can go and look at some other names of people who have helped out the show, maybe some links to some websites, that sort of thing. I appreciate everybody's support, and I appreciate you, yes, you listening to Monster Kid Radio right now. I think it's time to wrap up the show. So again, uh, thanks to Greg. Thanks to everybody listening. Thanks to, you know what, Conrad Veidt. Let's just say thanks to Conrad Veidt. I think he deserves it. 
Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Dead of Night. That belongs to the Alder Kings. It's on their EP, Who Goes There? Find out more about them over at thealderkings.com. Dead of Night appears on this episode of Monster Kid Radio. With their permission, talk to everybody next week. (laughs) 